Hi, I'm Whitney. And I'm Camden. Welcome to Ghosts and Garnets. Welcome. And before we get started, we just wanted to let you know that if you would like some extra content, you can head over to the support the show link in the show notes. It'll take you to Patreon and you can get signed up for bonus content every week if you like. It's a pretty good time. Maybe you should do it even if you don't like. (laughs) Just do it. Do it. Just do it. Yeah. So, guys, this one is rough. Somebody messaged us almost a year ago about things that are happening in this area of Idaho. And we didn't really have any idea. And what started as just a case that I was going to research has turned into a year of me falling down a fucking rabbit hole, not knowing what to do with all of this stuff. It's not just one case. It's multiple cases. It's all so fucking fishy. I just, I'm not a conspiracy person. (laughs) I am not. I generally tend to believe that the most obvious explanation is what happened. This turned my brain upside down. I still don't know what to do with it because the people that are left behind, the loved ones in these cases and the people that have been involved, it's been 10 years and they are worn out. They are worn out hoping that someone is going to do something. They are worn out talking about it. They have opened up to certain people, other podcasters about their stories and it was told wrong and they felt betrayed and used. And it's, I've been communicating with some of these people for a year. And I, I truly, I didn't know if we should just drive up there and like make a whole series about this. Maybe we still will. This is maybe 10%, I think, of the information that we're going to give you today. Because there's so much that I still don't know. Well, and you've come across so many roadblocks because of the damage that the story being yeah. told in the wrong way has caused. So mm-hmm. you're getting a lot of roadblocks. Maybe if somebody hears this and hopefully hears that we're trying to tell the real and truthful story, yeah, you'll get more information. Yeah. I mean, people are understandably weary. Somebody, somebody tried to do a podcast about this around 2016. And I don't think spend a lot of time talking to the people actually involved in the case. And when they did, they they screwed it up. I mean, it happens, but this was like a, a series podcast. This was, I think, six or eight episodes about this. And I didn't even listen to it because I spoke with one of the victim's moms and she told me that none of it is right. So I didn't even want to listen to it because I didn't want to get something in my head that wasn't correct. Yeah, you've already been marinating on it for a year. Like, why add extra seasoning <laughs> that isn't even good? Yes. So, guys, we are going to talk about Silver Valley, Idaho today. It is way up north, Montana-Idaho border. It's a bunch of small communities, teeny tiny towns that they call Silver Valley. And something is not something is not right up there. It's batshit cuckoo bird crazy town. Also, are you having a pajama day? Yes, I am. Guys, it's Saturday morning. We never record on Saturday mornings. I have to study for a test. And I actually, these are not the jammies I slept in. Oh, she changed into day jammies. I put day jammies on this morning because I was like, it's rainy and gloomy and I'm going to have to be inside all day podcasting and studying for a test. And I was like, I'm just going to be comfy today. So I'm in day jams. Is anybody else having a jammy day at your house? Poppy has yet to get dressed, but she will get dressed. Russ is dressed. Oh, that does not surprise me. Yeah. Well, I have him. I have him doing things. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) As one does. All right. I'll stop bothering you about your PJs. Well, no, I mean... Take it all in, folks. That's the last bit of levity you're going to get for the next hour and 15 minutes-ish. So the story we have for you today is infuriating. 
as I said, we have been talking about doing this for more than a year, trying to decide what to do with it. The more I dug in, the stranger it got. And for the very first time in my life, the word conspiracy lit up in my brain. And when speaking with family members and others that were involved in the case, they said, because they didn't want to talk on record, they didn't want to to get into it too much. They pointed me in the direction of the most accurate coverage of some of these cases. They said, if I was going to talk to you, I would say this, this is accurate. So KHQ News, it's out of Spokane. They spent a year covering these cases back in, I think it was 2016. And they did a really excellent job, but hit walls. Also, the newspaper out of Coeur d'Alene wrote a three-part series called Death in the Valley in their newspaper. And it sort of spread out over a few years. And as other crimes started happening, it became not just one weird story or two weird stories. We're going to tell you three today. There are more. These three, they're the most interconnected, I think. But I think there is another case, maybe the reason that all of these these cases happened. Anyway, I'll stop being vague, jump into it. But I'm going to tell you, this is really sad. Trigger warnings. It's not a pretty picture today. Between the hours of midnight and 1 a.m. on October 26, 2013, Arlen Cook was awoken briefly by the sound of two loud bangs, like the microwave being open and shut. But between the fan that he always had on while he was sleeping and the fact that he had noisy teenage kids, it didn't really wake him up all the way and it wasn't out of the ordinary for his kids to be banging around at that time of night while he was trying to sleep. Earlier in the night, his daughters, Bethany and Brianna, had been out celebrating Bethany's birthday. Arlen and Brianna had argued a little bit earlier in the day. So when Arlen finally got up around 1 a.m. to use the bathroom, he decided he was going to check on Brianna while he was up. Like a lot of teenagers, Brianna would get worked up pretty easily about things, but he knew if you just gave her a little bit of time, she would cool off and then it would all be fine. So he was like, it's been a few hours. I'll just check on her, make sure everything's good. So Harlan walked to the bathroom and opened the door and his entire world stopped. He was looking directly at his daughter, Brianna, who was hanging from the shower rod with an electrical cord tied around her neck. And in that moment, all he could think was that her feet were touching the floor and she could have stood up. He tried to stay calm and he grabbed Brianna and held her up while he tried to untie her. When he couldn't get the cord off, he got a knife and cut the cord, leaving a portion tied around Brianna's neck and the rest of it still hanging from the shower rod. He quickly went through Brianna's pockets trying to find her cell phone so he could call 911. She always had her phone on her, but he couldn't find it. He only found some pills in her pocket, a little bit of weed, and $60, but no phone. So on autopilot, he kept moving. But I already knew she was dead, he said. I saw it in her eyes. When you're fixed, you're fixed, and your eyes are gone. Knowing he didn't have another choice, he threw on some clothes and decided to take Brianna to the hospital. He said, I grabbed my girl, dragged her out there, and put her in the car. Then I flew. Arlen thinks he got to the hospital around 1.30 in the morning, and his daughter was pronounced dead at 1.49 a.m. Then the rest of the family was called. Brianna's mom, Teresa, was woken up with a phone call telling her to get to the hospital. She rushed to the hospital only to be told by the doctor, I'm sorry, ma'am, your daughter didn't make it. I'll get her cleaned up so you can say goodbye. Brianna's sister, Bethany, got a call and had a friend drive her to the hospital the entire time thinking to herself, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. She thinks she saw her mom first. She remembers her brother, Thomas, telling her not to go into the room where Brianna was. She remembers her father saying he was sorry over and over again and that he had tried to save her. She eventually fell to the ground, sobbing. And throughout it all, Teresa Palin sat in the waiting room. I was so confused, she said. It kind of feels like sliding off the edge of the world. Well, that is an awful way to start. 
Yep. 17 years old, had been out with her sister and no indication at all. I don't know why it's so much more eerie to me. Suicide is so much more eerie to me. Okay, I guess I should say alleged suicide Mm -hmm. is more eerie to me than murders a lot of the time. It just leaves me with this really weird feeling. Well, and this one, the more you dig into it, the more insulting isn't the right word. But this was so clearly not a suicide. The more you get into it, it's almost insulting that someone thought that this was going to fool everyone. Former Shoshone County Deputy Coroner Dave Roos was asleep when he got a call from Coroner Lonnie Deuce telling him that there was an emergency in Kellogg and that a teenage girl had committed suicide. Deuce was out of town, so he asked Dave to head to the Shoshone Medical Center. So Dave went to the hospital and said everything felt pretty routine to him until he walked in. He said, quote, If it feels wrong, something probably is wrong. And my gut instinct told me that something was wrong when I walked into that hospital. A nurse met Dave and told him what Arlen had recounted to her before he went to the examination room where Brianna was. He was surprised to find that her body was cold. It shouldn't have been so cold, considering that she had only been pronounced dead a short time before. He said it was like touching a cold counter. It was like somebody that had been dead for five or six hours. He also noticed that a large contusion was in the center of Brianna's forehead, and it struck him as strange. The contusion was swollen, and injuries that happen post-mortem don't swell, so this injury to her head had to have happened prior to her death. He noted injuries to a finger on her leg and her lower lip. He also noted that there were marks on both of Brianna's knees, which he thought indicated that she had died kneeling on something like a bath mat. Quote, that right away struck me as funny, and I said, wait a minute, these are post-mortem marks. They're set, end quote. Deciding to listen to his gut, which rarely steered him wrong, Dave took out his cell phone and took several pictures of Brianna because what he was seeing was not lining up with a suicide. Brianna's mom, Teresa, sat in the waiting room in the hospital surrounded by people. She said she was consumed by numbness and was very calm, not crying for hours after she got the phone call. She was in shock and would stay that way for weeks after. Who's the mom? Roos asked as he entered the waiting room. Friends and family quickly pointed to Palin. I'm so sorry, Roos said to Teresa as he led her to the room where Brianna's body was. He talked her through the next steps, saying that Brianna's body would be taken to Spokane for an autopsy. Then Dave said something surprising. She didn't do this to herself, Roos whispered to Teresa. Dave Roos shared his suspicion with Pinehurst Chief of Police, Rocky Wilson, when he arrived. Roos told Wilson that suicide was not evident in this case and that Wilson should take photos of the body, to which Wilson replied that he did not need to take photos when it's an obvious suicide. After speaking with Roos, Chief Wilson spoke with Arlen Cook. Cook told him what had happened that night, with Wilson quietly listening as he recounted the events. Wilson wanted to see the scene, and Arlen agreed to meet him back at his home. That evening, Chief Wilson showed up to Arlen Cook's house, where Cook and two of his relatives met him. Quote, I opened the door and showed him around, Cook said. He took, like, two or three pictures, and that's it, end quote. While Wilson was taking the photos, Cook said he noticed that the portion of cord left hanging on the shower rod after he'd cut Brianna down was missing. It was gone. Wilson, according to Cook, told the family members he was sorry for their loss, then left. The house was not taped off or secured for further investigation, Cook added. According to Cook, Wilson never contacted him again regarding the investigation. Brianna's phone, which Cook had tried to find to call for help after cutting his daughter down, turned up the next afternoon under a love seat in the teen's bedroom. According to family members, the phone had been factory reset and did not contain any messages or information on it. That was a huge red flag for us, Palin said. Brianna was never out of sight of her phone. Her phone was in whatever room she was in, and if she switched rooms, so did her phone. So, just right off the bat, she has a goose egg on her forehead. She has marks on her knees that would indicate that she was kneeling when she died, because they didn't go away, but her father found her, and she was her feet were on the floor. Her cell phone of a 17-year-old girl 
Their phones are always on their body. Why was it factory reset and under a chair in her room? And it's weird that the cord was gone. Where's the cord? And I think it's important to point out too that everyone was at the hospital for many hours. This house was not locked off. It was not cordoned off. Anybody could have come in. Well, and how fucking creepy for Arlen to, one, I mean, it's horrific that he found his daughter, but then, I mean, it seems that somebody is coming and going. Yeah. Well, we'll get into it and you'll see kind of what events in the night preceded this. But already there are enough questions to where law enforcement should be doing an investigation. Yeah, they should be doing something. And Rocky Wilson is a is an interesting character in this. He's ugh. All right. So what happened that night? Brianna had gone with Bethany and some of their friends to a house on Two Mile Road in Osborne, Idaho. And this house was a known party house. A couple of older men lived there. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they were drug dealers. But this was a house everybody hang, hung out at. There were drugs and booze readily available. And this is where everyone was going to celebrate Bethany's birthday. Bethany said while they were at the party, something upset Brianna. But that didn't really phase her because Brianna tended to get worked up about things. She got mad, but that was Brianna, Bethany said. You'd fight. And then she'd text me and say, I love you, sissy. But perhaps most unsettling were some of Brianna's final words as she left the home where they had been partying. She was heard by a witness saying, I'm not staying quiet any longer. I will not cover for them anymore. Then Brianna took off out of the house and her sister Bethany and a couple of friends followed her. She was walking down the road and they picked her up and then drove her back to her dad's house. And that's where the nightmare began. So in a letter sent to the Idaho State Police Department, which were thus far not involved in any of this. On November 8th, the agency was asked to launch an investigation into Brianna Cook. Shoshone County Prosecuting Attorney Keisha Oxidine and Sheriff Mitch Alexander wrote that they believed it would be in the best interest of justice if ISP fully and completely investigated the matter. Both officials had received numerous requests from the coroner's office the letter states, for a thorough look at the teen's death because Pinehurst Police Chief Rocky Wilson had not completed the investigation. In addition, we have received information that a relative of Wilson may be a potential suspect in the matter, the letter states. So Oxidine and Alexander asked whomever was assigned to the case to not notify Chief Wilson of their investigation. That way, ISP could prevent the possibility of the chief interfering. Ten days later, Detective Michael Van Leuven met with the two county officials and he launched his investigation. And her case was labeled a death investigation. That was what they were calling it. So Teresa Palin obtained a copy of her daughter's autopsy report, which was conducted at the Spokane County Medical Examiner's Office. A summary of the case findings state that Brianna suffered from asphyxia due to hanging by ligature and blunt impact to the head with a contusion of the forehead that was thought to be from a circular metal object. Police documents said that they assumed that the mark happened on her forehead when she hit the floor when her dad cut her down. But that shower was teeny tiny. There was no room for her to fall down. Moreover, Teresa said that Brianna could not stand the feeling of not being able to breathe. And she was also outspoken against suicide. She once told her family she would never do that to them. Another inconsistency that bothered both Teresa and Roos was the fact that Brianna had bruising on her knees, but she was found hanging by Arlen with her feet on the floor. And there was more. Bruce said there was no scene containment. Anyone could come in and out. I felt it in my heart and in my soul. I will go to my grave knowing that this girl was murdered, Bruce told the press. There is no doubt in my mind the whole thing didn't add up. And this is the most chilling part to me. According to Teresa, the most troubling thing about all of this was that Brianna did not know how to tie 
She couldn't even tie her own shoes. Just one of those things that she couldn't get. It is not possible that she was able to tie a series of knots. That is chilling. What the fuck? Yeah. It's just one of those things. Like, Like my mom tried to teach me forever how to do a cartwheel. Hours and hours and hours spent. I couldn't do it. I just, my brain couldn't wrap around it. And that's what her mom says. It's just one of those things she couldn't get. She did not know how to tie knots. Yeah, it's like I could never figure out how to French braid. Not that fucking hard. I'm, I've been told. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there was a series of knots in this cord. Well, there would have had to have been. So. Suspicious. Yeah. Chief Wilson's report on the incident, which was modified and approved on December 10th, 2013, the chief of police contradicts Cook's narrative regarding the visit to the Pinehurst home. Quote, when I entered the bathroom, I saw a cord hanging from the shower door slider, Wilson wrote. I took pictures of the bathroom and cord. I then pulled on the cord and it was secure, but the cut end of the cord was only approximately four feet off the floor, end quote. The report continues with Wilson stating he couldn't find anything in the residence that pointed at anything but suicide. He added that after leaving the house and going to the hospital to question friends and family, quote, everyone I spoke to said the same thing. They thought Brianna was bipolar and just not diagnosed as such, end quote. There are two versions of Wilson's report with two different conclusions. In the version obtained through a public records request, Wilson's report concludes with the police chief stating he is still waiting for the official autopsy report, but adds that he is calling this a suicide as I have no evidence pointing otherwise. Two paragraphs are added to the version of the report given to the press by Brianna's family. In this version, Wilson writes that ISP investigator Van Leuven asked him for a copy of his report prior to launching the ISP investigation. Quote, at the end of his investigation, he informed me that he came to the same conclusion as I did. The report dated December 10th, 2013 states, this case will be closed, end quote. Approximately one month later, detectives with Idaho State Police met with Brianna's father to discuss the incident. According to police reports obtained by the press, ISP detective Michael Van Leuven questioned friends and family members until February 2014. So that's two months. That's two months later. Right. He didn't tell Wilson that he was closing the case. He didn't tell Wilson that he agreed with him. He was still questioning people two months later. Right. Teresa Palin said that on Saturday, January 11th, her sister visited the same house in Osborne to ask the people there about Brianna and if they knew anything about her death. At one point during the conversation Palin's sister was having about Cook, a young man named Dylan Parker allegedly entered the room and was told everything was fine and to go back out, Palin said. Several hours later, Parker went missing. Yeah. Hmm. (sighs) This is a very interesting story so far. I, at one point, literally head-desked myself. (laughs) when I was researching this. My head, I just banged it on my desk because Teresa, Brianna's mom, told me, this will just, you will just go in circles. And I was like, yeah, you know, probably these cases are hard. No, she was absolutely right. It is maddening, this case. (sighs) And this next one is like a mother's worst fucking nightmare. So on the night of January 11th, 2014, Mona Rupp got a call from her 18-year-old son named Dylan. Dylan was at a house party on Two Mile Road, the same house where Brianna had been. It was freezing and Dylan had been drinking. And so the plan was that Mona was going to pick Dylan up from this party. And between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m., there were 12 different communications going back and forth between Dylan and Mona, like texts and calls trying to plan where she was going to get him and when. So finally, a little after midnight... He calls her and he's like, I'm ready to go. And they decide she's going to pick him up at a gas station, which is about a mile down the road from this house party. Dylan says he's just going to walk to the gas station. Now, it's freezing. It is January in northern Idaho. It is snowing. It is pitch black. And Dylan does not have a coat. But he's like, nope, I'll just walk there. I'll meet you there. It'll take me as long as it will take you to get there. 
because she was, I think, four or five miles away. And this house is rural. It's right on the road, but there's nothing else around it. And if you turn left in front of the house, you can see the lights of the main stretch of town way down, okay? On the other side, there's nothing. It's woods and it's black. It is a straight shot to the gas station. There is no way to get lost. So Mona gets in the car and as she's making her way from her house to the gas station, Dylan calls her again. And this time he seems panicked and he keeps asking her, are you on your way? Are you on your way? And she's like, yes, I'm on my way. I'll, I'll see you at the gas station. And she said she could tell something was wrong just by the tone of his voice. She's like, I'll be there in a minute. And they hung up and she said he had been drinking. I could tell he was drinking but he had just called to ask for a ride home. We were going to meet at the gas station. She said the tone of her son's voice was chilling. It was raised and it sounded panicky. So a few minutes later, less than 10 minutes later, Mona gets to the gas station and she doesn't see Dylan. And she thinks, well, maybe he's gone inside because it's freezing and snowing out. So she goes inside and checks with the attendant, but Dylan has not been there. So she's like, maybe he's still walking down two mile road. So she calls him over and over. It just rings. He doesn't answer her calls or her texts. She gets back in her car, turns on her brights, and drives up Two Mile Road. She rolls down her window, and it is pitch blackout, and she starts screaming Dylan's name. But the night is silent. She calls county police, and... Actually, they immediately began a search, which I can only assume was because of the storm. I mean, this kid was like a 19-year-old kid. I think if it was summer, they'd be like, eh. But she's like, no, we were supposed to meet. He's not answering his phone. It's a blizzard out. He doesn't have a coat. So the police hopped too, and they started looking. They went to the house on Two Mile to talk to people at the party. And everyone at the party said Dylan had seemed fine. He wasn't obviously upset. And he wasn't obviously drunk. Meanwhile, Mona was still looking. She said she drove up to the house where he was. Her dad came with her. They drove up Two Mile Road and down. They got to the top. They turned around. And there was clean snow on the ground. There were no footprints. And soon after, his phone shut off. Word spread quickly that Dylan had disappeared. Massive search efforts started community-wide. But his days turned into weeks there was zero sign of Dylan. Heart-wrenching after heart-wrenching, because I want to be like, well, I think that one of the worst feelings as a parent is to not know where in the hell Mm -hmm. your child is in the freezing fucking cold. But then I'm like, man, I don't know if that's worse than finding your kid presumably hanging themselves. Like, it's all fucking terrible. No, this is terrible. And I mean, this all happened within a 10 minute period. She spoke with her son and then he is vanished, vanished. That's wild, especially because of the snow. Like that just adds to the mystery because. Mm -hmm. Well, and when you're in a really rural spot in the night and it is black and snowing, it is the weirdest silence out there. Oh my God. Yeah. You can hear, I mean, you could hear a fucking pin drop out in something like that. And to just be screaming your kid's name, there's no way he could have gotten very far in the 10 minutes it had been like if he was just lost. Right. There's no way he's leaving the roadway if he, if he's no. I mean, you're, it's so dark. There's two ways to go. Exactly. And only one way has lights. On January 21st, two teens were riding ATVs in the mountains, and they crashed around 1230. They left the ATV, and they came back the next morning. When they come back in the light of day to get the wrecked ATV, they find Dylan frozen in the snow. Dylan was found with no pants on and no shoes on. He was so far up into the mountains that they were outside city limits. He was wearing his socks which were totally clean. There were also no footprints in the snow. Even if it had been snowed over or melted, there's a forensics process called casting that helps investigators find signs of tracks in snow. Dylan underwent an autopsy, which noted he had scratches all over his body, hands, face, everything. 
but where he didn't have scratches was very interesting. He didn't have scratches on his legs, and he had no pants on, which would indicate that maybe Dylan had been carried up the mountain. Pretty quickly, investigators came to the decision that Dylan had simply been fucked up and got lost in the mountains. They said that rather than turning left toward town, which is the only way where there are lights, he turned right and wandered to the other direction. And guess who thought this was fucking fishy? Dave Roos, the coroner. You can see the lights of Osborne. When you look the other way, it's just dark. He knew which way he was going. He grew up here. And as any boy, they're in the mountains. He's used to the mountains. Idaho State Police documents say Dylan's autopsy revealed he had alcohol and drugs in his system the night he died. They believe that, combined with exposure to the elements, killed him. Remember that Dylan was also found without pants or boots. Experts say it's common for someone experiencing hypothermia to remove their clothes. But guess what? His pants and shoes were never found, and his socks were completely clean. Quote, there were no injuries to his feet, and this was a boy walking in the woods, Roos said. I know it's been argued away that a lot of the scratches on his body were because he was staggering around the brush and trees, yet the bottom of his socks were clean and no injuries to his feet. Yes, he froze to death. Yes, he was inebriated under the influence. I won't dispute any of that, but I don't believe this boy wandered up all on his own and laid down and died. Mona agreed with Roos, quote, I don't deny my son died of hypothermia, she said. What I don't understand is how he got up there. There were no footprints that day, no tire tracks. There was nothing. How did he get up there? The Idaho State Police stated that Dylan died of hypothermia with drugs and alcohol contributing. But Dylan wouldn't be the last teenage death they would deal with. 107 days after Dylan was found, another one. Okay, so even if he was, if somebody took him up there, like, there's nothing to show how he got there. So did, like, aliens? It was like he was dropped into this. And this was like a steep hillside. A couple of the articles said it was in a ravine, but it was far away from where... The house was. Yes. Right. I was like, well, maybe there weren't footprints because it snowed over them. But... They couldn't find any evidence of any footprints ever. And they never found his boots or his pants anywhere. They looked all around the mountain. They didn't find they didn't find his shit. So and weird. his socks were clean. If he is walking around in the woods, even if there's snow on the ground, those socks are gonna get dirty. Oh, for sure. You would have injuries to your feet if you're walking around the mountains with no shoes on. Why weren't there scratches on his legs like there were all the rest of his body? So bizarro. And in one of the articles, it says that alcohol was found in his system and drugs weren't. So definitely he had been drinking. Whether or not there were drugs in his system, I couldn't clarify one way or the other. The main article that I used, main series of articles that I used for this, it said that there were drugs in his system. Either way, everyone who was with him at the party and his own mom said he was not so fucked up that it was, he was not a falling down drunk lost in the woods without his shoes on inebriated. Yeah, for sure. Because when you're that intoxicated, whether it be from drugs, drugs, alcohol, or both, you would hear that in their voice. Yeah. I do have concerns about the police work on the side of this mountain. I'm just going to say. Oh, this is shady as shit. This whole thing is shady as shit. And we'll get into some of like the theories of what's going on here, but it's it's not good. All right, so this next teenager that we're going to talk about, I was able to find very little information about this case. I'm going to tell you what I found, but not so much noise has been made about this case. But I think it ties in because they all knew each other, because of how she was found, and because of who she was, was just not indicative of what happened. All right, so Ashley Mary Sullivan was born in Butte, Montana on March 17th, 1995 to Carrie and Dennis. The family moved all over the Northwest when Ashley was growing up. And this made it so she made friends really easily and she had friends all over Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Ashley played soccer, basketball, ran track, 
was in drama, and she played the flute. She was an advocate for people who were struggling. And like Dylan and Brianna had attended Kellogg High School. And according to Ashley's mom, Ashley had been devastated by the loss of Dylan and Brianna. They all knew each other. Prior to the event, Ashley had also told her mom that she was afraid of something, but wouldn't give her mom specifics on what she was afraid of. And that's literally all I could find on that. And then on April 29th, 2014, Ashley was found hanging from a tree on property near a home in Kootenai County. She was found hung with a toe strap around her neck. Quote, I got a phone call from the coroner. His exact words are, Dave, there's another one, Roos said. Ashley's autopsy did show that there was pot in her system, but that was it. But what stood out to Dave Roos immediately was that Ashley had an eerily similar wound to Brianna's on her forehead. It was like you could take Brianna and Ashley's foreheads side by side and you couldn't tell them apart, Roos said. But he says that's not noted in the autopsy. Because while Ashley's body was found in Kootenai County, she was transported to Shoshone County, making the coroner who wrote the report on her death, Lonnie Deuce. He was listed on her autopsy report, not Dave. A few weeks after Ashley's body was found, Dave Roos's career ended as deputy coroner. Three weeks later, I came in and I was terminated, he said. They told me they let me go because they were hiring a licensed person. Then they hired an MRT, which is what I was. I lost my job because I refused to be quiet. I wouldn't keep my mouth shut. I wasn't going to be quiet and lay back and say, okay, I agree with you guys. Ashley's mom said, I believe on the night of April 29th, 2014, my daughter was murdered and it was made to look like a suicide. Kootenai County investigators handled Ashley Sullivan's case and they say that they do suspect that Ashley committed suicide. There's not a lot to say other than shady as fuck. Why wouldn't that wound be noted on her autopsy? And why was she transported to a different county instead of to Dave? Yeah, that's super weird because there's so much protocol for transporting, not even just bodies, not deaths, but there's so many rules and regulations on transporting people to hospitals. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like they get to choose where they go. That's not a thing. It's very strange. I mean, it's wild. Dave Roos, from the beginning, was like, something is not right about this. He's like, my gut says something is not right about this. This does not feel right to me. These kids, none of this feels right. And he was making enough noise to where they were like, let's just cut him out of the investigation altogether. And then when he wouldn't shut up, they fired him. Which is also really interesting because I don't know, the coroner's quote unquote powers within the judicial system have power over the sheriff. It's really odd that they could just get rid of him so easily. Anyway. Well, yeah. And the reason they used is they said that they were going to hire a licensed person, but the person that they replaced him with had the exact same credentials that he did. Right. And so would coroners or elected officials? Yeah. Well, so like if somebody resigns or Mm -hmm. I guess in this case gets fired, however that happens, then the powers that be they get to appoint somebody that they want yeah. until the next election. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And typically, whoever they appoint, typically, as long as they don't totally fuck up, they're going to get reelected. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the investigation. The Idaho State Police's statement, quote, Both the Cook and Parker cases are closed. Our detectives looked at many different angles in both cases, and foul play is not suspected in either. Of course, if a citizen has information that would indicate foul play and they have not talked previously to law enforcement, they can call the agencies that originated the cases. This would be in the Pinehurst Police Department in the Cook case or the Shoshone County Sheriff's Office in the Parker case. End quote. The Shoshone County Coroner Lonnie Deuce told KHQ over the phone that all three cases have been thoroughly investigated and, in his opinion, there is nothing pointing to foul play with any of them. On March 9th, 2015, the press contacted Teresa Baker, public information officer for the Idaho State Police, regarding the agency's investigation. 
Baker said she would check on the status of the investigation the following day because Van Leuven was out of the office. The press sent two follow-up emails on March 11th and March 24th, which Baker did not answer. On April 21st, 2015, the press submitted a formal public records request for investigative materials gathered by Van Leuven. That request was handled by Baker, who mailed the press a series of reports on May 21st, 2015. The documents contain summaries of interviews the detective conducted with multiple individuals involved with the case, as well as an introduction to the events that led to the agency launching an investigation. In a follow-up email on the day the information was received, the press asked Baker the following. I received the results of my public records request and got all of Detective Van Leuven's investigative materials. What I didn't see is a final determination or finding in connection to Brianna Cook's death. Is this case still considered open, or did the detective conclude that it was a suicide and close the case? The press did not receive a response to that email until a follow-up was sent to the agency on January 28th, eight months later. Baker responded to several questions from the press, beginning by stating that ISP's investigation into Brianna's death is closed. When asked what the results of the investigation were, Baker said, quote, Our report reflects the facts that we found, end quote. However, in the investigative materials obtained by the press, there is no mention of Van Leuven's findings or conclusions regarding the case. The press also asked what, if anything, has prevented ISP from giving Brianna's family a concrete answer as to whether the teen's death was suicide. Quote, it is the job of law enforcement to investigate and to report the facts that are found, Baker wrote. We have talked to the family on three different occasions reporting the facts that we found, end quote. When asked about concerns regarding the initial investigation of the incident, Baker said ISP was asked to investigate the death of Brianna Cook, not the police chief or the way his agency investigated or the way the scene was secured. The January 28th letter sent to the press by Oxidine and Alexander concludes, quote, To our knowledge, the Idaho State Police has completed their investigation into the death and determined that there is no evidence to prove her death is a homicide, end quote. So if you remember, Dave made such a stink after Brianna's death and called the prosecutor's office and enough people were concerned about the way that Wilson was handling it, that in their letter, the prosecutors said to the Idaho State Police, we need you to investigate this death and we also need you to not tell Wilson because he has a family member that might be involved. Right. So that's bullshit. They were asked to investigate Wilson's. And at the very least, they knew that Wilson was suspected in something, even if they didn't Uh out and out ask the question. It's quite obvious to anybody who's not a bozo. Yep. As for the rumors about Chief Wilson, this letter that was sent also said, quote, Idaho State Police and Shoshone County have a positive working relationship, and Shoshone County often requests that the Idaho State Police investigate suspicious deaths because they have more personnel and substantially more resources than local police departments. Advocating to not notify Wilson, the letter adds, was based entirely on a rumor circulating after Miss Cook's death that an individual related to Chief Wilson may have information about her death. It is my understanding that rumor was determined to be unfounded through subsequent investigation by the Idaho State Police. The request was made to avoid any potential conflict of interest that would have existed had that rumor been true, which could not be determined until the Idaho State Police investigated that information. The letter also responds to a question by the press regarding multiple sources raising concern over Wilson's initial handling of the incident, particularly that the home was not secured following Brianna's death and that evidence was missing. In regards to any inquiries concerning allegations of conduct by Chief Wilson, there is no evidence that any criminal conduct occurred, the letter concluded. As for Dave Roos, he said, quote, these kids still haunt me. There is no doubt in my mind that there is somebody and more likely than one person out there that knows something that knows why Brianna is dead and why Ashley is dead and why Dylan is dead. Somebody knows something. It was always considered a joke, but the saying was, if you wanted to commit murder, do it in Shoshone County. You'll get away with it. I've seen deaths in a lot of different forms and shapes. 
but it gets back to that gut instinct thing. If it looks wrong, if it feels wrong, it is wrong. Brianna Cook, Dylan Parker, and Ashley Sullivan were murdered, end quote. Teresa Palin, Brianna's mom, doesn't spend much time in Silver Valley anymore. She told the press that at this point, it would be easier on her if she was just given a definitive statement from authorities that Brianna had killed herself. Quote, I'm just a mother who got a call in the middle of the night. That's all I am. I don't want to think about someone else choking my daughter to death. She wasn't just a mixed up teenage drug user. She was an amazing athlete and she was an awesome person. She was a teenager who deserved to make bad choices and have a chance to grow up and change. And no matter what it costs us, we never want another family to face this because we don't want to add any additional pain to the excruciating trauma we are already being subjected to. If we keep the silence, whatever happened to her can happen to someone else. I don't even have any words. Like, I cannot imagine the despair. Like, just out-and-out despair you would have at not having anybody who wants to really figure out what happened to them. Well, and Teresa has a lot more information. I think she is hopeful that someone will do an actual investigation into this, and she doesn't want to be the person who screws it up if she shares everything she knows. And so she has kept a lot to herself. I think Brianna's family has kept a lot to themselves. I know Dylan's mom hired a private investigator. Not much has come out since 2016 about this. And I reached out to Dave Roos. He had his wife get back to me. You know, she was lovely and and very sweet, but essentially just said, you know, he, he's talked about it and it hasn't turned out well, and he's just tired. And I get that. I absolutely understand that. I said, if he ever changes his mind, please let me know. We're happy to come up and talk to him. Brianna's mom, Teresa, is an open book. She's, you know, she was very sweet. She answered all my questions. She said she was willing to talk about it whenever and wherever, but everybody else was pretty gun shy at this point, which understandable. understandable. What is so wild about this is that when I was researching these, I came across no shit, probably 10 other cases that I have never heard of, murder cases in this teeny tiny community over the last 20 years that are all fucking weird. And (sighs) Rocky Wilson's son, I want to do a whole episode on his son, who is a convicted double murderer. When did he commit murders? What year? 2009. So was... He in prison when... I don't know. I didn't dig too much too deep into it because I was just like, I can't just overloaded with information. But I want to do a whole thing on the two people that he murdered. These guys that lived in this house on Two Mile Road yeah. were fucking skeezy drug dealers, older guys hanging out with teenagers. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. You've got a lot more work to do, sister. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Fine. One weird death. Meh. Right. Two, you shut up and you start listening to people. Three, maybe four. Come on. Right. Bring somebody else in. I mean, Teresa, she's reached out to Unsolved Mysteries. She's reached out to the FBI asking them to come in and do an investigation. She has tried everything she can think of trying to get some outside entity to pay attention and to come in and to dig out the rot that is very clearly in this community. This sounds like a case that is right in line with Dateline. Like, what is happening? Like, somebody get up there. Are they, are people? We'll work with you, Keith. Yeah, Keith, we're your go-to gals. Yeah. I feel like we've got this ball rolling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, guys, Mayo, Idaho is going to make you even sadder. I'll just bring it on. You're just piling it on this morning. So just keep at it. All right. So we're going to talk a little about Brianna's sister, Bethany, who she was with that night. Bethany was a little older than Brianna and they were crazy close, like twin sister, close, best friends. And when Brianna was killed on Bethany's birthday, it broke her heart and she never quite recovered. And she ended up turning to drugs to deal with Brianna's death. 
But after struggling for years on and off with her sobriety, around 2020, Bethany completely turned her life around. She got clean. She took classes. And after much hard work, she got into management at Arby's. She had her own house and became the super mom she had always wanted to be to her daughter, Aubrey. But for unknown reasons, on November 10th, 2022, Bethany relapsed and overdosed and died. So Teresa now has lost two children. In devastating ways. Yeah. My God. Yeah. I don't know how you just don't just break, you know? Right, right. And with her, I mean, probably, you know, some information. Mm -hmm. Not that she was hiding anything, but it's just people who were there on that night and in that circle of friends. Yep. It's just more information that's gone now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the story of the most depression we've had in one story, I think, for a while. Yeah. So we really know you probably didn't enjoy hanging out with us that much today. <laughs> but it was actually a really good story. Yeah. And maybe this will get some people talking. Yeah. I know I'm not done with this. No, definitely. Clearly. It has dug its claws into me. This is not something I'm going to be able to forget. And I want to do more with it. We will do more with it. If we can get some more people willing to talk to us, we will do more with it. And we will make as much noise as we can. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with us today. And we will see you next week. Keep your pants on.